Welcome to Committed Conversations with Kate and Sam. This podcast is supported by BYU Studies, Brigham Young University's premier academic journal. The Church History Department, Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, co-sponsors the podcast. Dr. Kate Holbrook, Academic Collaborations Director at the Church History Department, is an expert in Latter-day Saint women's history. Her husband, Dr. Sam Brown, is a research physician with a longtime interest in publications in church history. On Committed Conversations, they will explore together key texts and topics in church history. Listen in. Welcome to Episode 3 of Committed Conversations with Kate and Sam. I'm Kate Holbrook. And I'm Sam Brown. We're glad to have you join us today. We'll be talking about the third meeting of the Nauvoo Female Relief Society. This took place on March 31st, 1842. It's been about three months for us since we produce one episode per month, but for them, it had only been three weeks. They'd been meeting once every week uh, since founding the organization. And as a reminder, if you'd like to follow along or study these Nauvoo Relief Society minutes yourselves, they're available online on the Joseph Smith Papers website or as part of the book, The First 50 Years of Relief Society, either on your Gospel Library app or in the book itself. And this week's episode uh, starts on page 24. This week, we'll be talking about approaches to meeting trials and also a little bit about priesthood. But first, we wanted to follow up on the cliffhanger that we left you with uh, from last week's episode. We'd been talking about Clarissa Marvel, and someone had been assigned to go and talk with Clarissa Marvel because she'd been accused of telling tales about Joseph Smith. Well, they report at this next meeting that they went and spoke with Clarissa Marvel and actually thought she was delightful and didn't find anything wrong with her. So then they still want to get to the bottom of this, So they go and they look for the two people who had first told them that Clarissa Marvel was spreading rumors. They say the young women's names who had accused her. And then one of the members of the presidency, Sister Whitney, motions that two people be appointed to go see these two young women. And the other counselor motions that Mrs. Allred and Mrs. Durfee be appointed to see them and cite them to appear at the next meeting. Zoinks. <laughs> Mrs. Durfee objects. And if you'll remember when, uh, when first they asked somebody to go visit Clarissa last week, she also objected. So nobody wants to be involved in this complicated business. Uh, it feels like, uh, feels like it's taken right out of a day in, in uh, the hospital when the, Team's trying to figure out who's going to be in charge of doing something hard and nobody wants to and <laughs> trying to figure out who's going to actually do it. But, but good news that Clarissa Marvel was innocent. Glad to hear about that. Now, let's get into this meeting. The meeting is once again in the red brick store up in the second floor room, which in the minutes they call the lodge room since the um, it's also functioning as a Masonic lodge. This time, the house is full to overflowing. So there's not even enough room for everybody who has shown up. Remember, they had 20 people at the first meeting, and then 50 people showed up at the next meeting, not total, but 50 wanting to become new members. After they sing, Joseph Smith opens the meeting with prayer. So he's there. And remember that he has a little office 
um, off to the side of their meeting room. So he's well aware of how many people are there. He can see them coming in. Joseph Smith begins by saying he's deeply invested in the success of this organization. And this, here's a quote, that it might be built up to the most high in an acceptable manner. And then he says that they're going too fast, by which he means they're growing too fast. He wants to make sure they're really checking in with every woman who wants to join the society and uh, making sure that her motives are pure, that she's leading a righteous life, that she will be a good addition to this society that he sees as a select society, a society of real leaders among the women of the church. Then he makes this interesting point uh, about trials. He says, All difficulties which might and would cross our way must be surmounted. Though the soul be tried, the heart faint, and hands hang down, we must not retrace our steps. There must be decision of character aside from sympathy. This struck me as an important uh, perspective and one that maybe in society today we sometimes lose track of when we are so hungry, so visibly hungry for sympathy. Uh, but he says uh, you have to also have decision of character. And you, um, though the soul be tried, the heart faint, and hands hang down, we must not retrace our steps. This reminded me of something that Elder Bednar said at a BYU devotional back 20 years ago in October of 2001. Quote, as you and I come to understand and employ the enabling power of the atonement in our personal lives, we will pray and seek for strength to change our circumstances rather than praying for our circumstances to be changed. We will become agents who act rather than objects that are acted upon. Okay, that kind of reminds me of that. There's that turn of phrase that Annie Lamott, she's the, I think of her as the alcoholic Protestant poet. Uh, bright and interesting <laughs> woman uh, who, who writes a lot out of the grief and pain of alcoholism, but also out of the, the sanctity of a relationship with God. And if I'm remembering right, it's Lamott who's famous for the phrase, God loves you just the way you are, and he loves you too much to leave you that way. And I think that gets at that balancing act that we have, that you, we have to have unconditional love, and we have to acknowledge that unconditional love is also the the force that can help all of us to grow into what we may yet become. And I think sometimes we get so frustrated with how hard it is to change as individuals and how hard it is to grow into that next phase of existence that we feel like the only safe thing you can do is be sympathetic. But in Christ and in full love, there's, there's this dance of, of full sympathy and of, loving well enough to imagine what we all can be in the future. It's a delicate, I mean, raising teenagers, it's uh, and, and having been a teenager who was raised by a devoted mother who <laughs> didn't know what to do with me. It's, it's hard to figure out how you communicate that, uh, the, the decision of character that Joseph Smith's referring to in addition to the sympathy. And I, I don't know that I have final answers just to, a sense that Lamott is right. That he loves us just how we are and loves us too much for us to remain that way forever. That's beautiful. I think that's a perfect iteration of the concept going on here. And 
I, I myself find this when I think about it. I, I find it empowering. I find uh, if I, I spend too much thinking about my woes and what's difficult, uh, then I can feel powerless. I like that, that Elder Bednar brought this. We, we will become agents who act rather than objects that are acted upon. I, it, it, these, these thoughts make me feel energized to become someone who can act rather than someone who can be acted upon. And I, I've taken this to heart. Sometimes in my prayers, I'll, I'll remember, pray for strength. Don't pray that this will mm. go away or <laughs> somehow be canceled or that I, I remember sometimes wanting catastrophes to happen when I was nervous about a final exam in college. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it, instead, pray for the strength to really see the thing through whatever shape it's taking. That's a great insight. Also important to note that uh, at the end of this, Joseph Smith says that the blessings of heaven may rest down upon us. This is all for beauty. This is also that we may receive blessings from heaven. Many of the blessings are from heaven are things that we have to act in order for them to rest down upon us because blessings from heaven are often about our growth. Okay, then Joseph Smith says, all must act in concert or nothing can be done. The society should move according to the ancient priesthood. Hence, there should be a select society separate from all the evils of the world, choice, virtuous, and holy. There's so much going on in these few lines, and I haven't even gotten to the biggest line yet. So, let's, we start off with this reminder, all must act in concert. Unity is, is something that's been emphasized at every meeting. This, but then, and then we have the society should move according to the ancient priesthood. And then in the final line, Joseph Smith said he was going to make of this society a kingdom of priests, as in Enoch's day, as in Paul's day. So this, this first part, the society should move according to the ancient priesthood, uh, reminds me that Sarah Kimball always remembered Joseph Smith saying, and Sarah Kimball, remember, was the woman who... Um, with Margaret Cook, they both first had this idea to, to get a society started. She remembers Joseph Smith saying that the Relief Society was organized after the pattern of the priesthood. And, and here, in Joseph Smith's words, it's, it should move according to the ancient priesthood. What, what does this mean? I mean, priesthood is the power of God, so it, does it mean that the society will have the power of God in it? I think it does mean that. Uh, does it mean that it will be organized? I think it does mean that. That's what I see as part of the, the pattern. Uh, does it mean to be a companion to what the male church leaders were doing? I think it does. Uh, I, I looked to, to Julie Beck's devotional that she gave in 2012, again at BYU. There's some real gold in those devotionals. Julie Beck was the Relief Society general president at the time she gave this talk, and she had just uh, released, she had just overseen as president the Daughters in My Kingdom publication, which is a, a history of the Relief Society organization. And I have seen in my own research that when Relief Society general presidents 
come in contact with these early documents of the church, it really expands their vision of Relief Society. Julie Beck starts off in her talk saying that priesthood quorums are not a class and Relief Society is not a class. We attended on Sunday, but it's much more than a class. It's, it's more of a call. Uh, and, and she quotes President David O. McKay that the very existence of these groups established by divine authorization proclaims our dependence upon one another the indispensable need of mutual help and assistance, which I loved. We don't, um, we don't get to heaven in this faith. We do not get to heaven alone. It's a, it's a communal endeavor. Sam, I feel like I should ask whether there's anything you want to add to that, because I think that's one of your favorite themes in life. Oh. <laughs> yeah, I mean, as I've done this, the writing and the research in church history and in doctrine or theology it seemed pretty clear that that that's one of the core elements of the restoration that's one of the areas where the protestants did some really useful things and some less useful things and one of the blind spots that they accidentally developed was really around this fact that we really are we are people to the extent we are in community and the last 50 years have been hard for a lot of people and there've been a lot of changes in the structure of society that have made it harder and harder to really bask in the glory of community. And I, and I think that the restoration can be a helpful corrective and a very practical kind of solution to that. I mean, it, yes, it, it's clearly theologically the case and clearly historically the case that we, live and breathe and have our being and that we have our future being in in the form of salvation through these communities. And I, I just think that's absolutely true. I've always marveled that, you know, when, when we were younger, everybody loved to say that no matter where you go, the church is absolutely the same. And I thought that was sort of true, but also sort of not the full story. It feels to me like wherever you go, the church is the sacred community of the saints. And it was always fascinating to me and sort of stunning to my non-Mormon friends that you could go to almost any city in the world and you could show up Sunday morning and there would be your people and they would welcome you in. And I remember I was, you know, I, I was sort of cool when I was in my twenties and I was wandering the world and I was in, I was on the North coast of Honduras. I just went to church and at church, got chatting, and a sister on one of the islands just off the north, just off the north coast of Honduras, invited me to go stay at her house for the night. And just, you know, you're, you're welcome, brother. And In the basement with a big spider, if I remember correctly. <laughs> yeah, no, was, I mean, they, they, were, they were living in great poverty, so it was basically a, a, a hole. It was just dirt nothing finished and a giant spider that kept staring at me and trying to decide how much of me to eat. Uh, but even as I was freaked out about the spider and very hot in that little, it was almost like a rabbit war. And I was in, I, I just thought, yeah, this is the, this is the gospel and, and this is our salvation and this is our experience and in life here on earth and in life in heaven. There was a period when I was in in college, in the early years of college, and I really loved to stay up very late at night 
And sometimes I would choose which ward to go to according to what time it started. And if I'd sleep too late to go to the 1 p.m. ward, you heard that correctly, <laughs> then I'd have to go to a different ward that started at 2.30 p.m. And um, I, I did feel a, a loss that, yes, I still got got church and, and a lot of good things from church, but but there's something also at the about the commitment of attending the very same ward every Sunday or most Sundays and really knowing those people um, that that makes it you know if if you're floating around from ward to ward you can get out of some of the commitments that really make participation in a ward fulfilling and meaningful refining a, a way to feel the Savior's love. Yeah, and they're they're hard. They're the hard work, but uh, they're the real work. I think that Ward family is not just some cute little turn of phrase for Latter Day Saints. It really does emphasize the the reality that we're bonded together. It, a lot like they were bonded together in the Relief Society as it was growing. They didn't have wards like we think of them now back in Nauvoo. So this Relief Society really was this opportunity for them to come together in that concrete community. Because, I mean, particularly now we can think of, well, community is just all other human beings, which is true at some level, but it's also so abstract and so remote that it's really easy to miss the point. Yes, we should always love and honor any person that comes across our path. Yes, we should worry about people who are remote from us. It's also true that our best loving happens a little closer to people we actually know and to people we actually are in a smaller community with. Not that we're trying to be tribal and throw rocks at a competing tribe, but until you really commit and move with this local community, I think you you get you get a little bit lost in cosmopolitanism. That that can be a problem. Thanks for sharing that thought. The the big question that Julie Beck addresses in her devotional was why are we divided? Why are we organized into priesthood quorums and relief societies? And she poses a number of reasons that I, I thought were worth mentioning. She, one, she mentions patterns of the priesthood. One is the formation of a presidency. One is sustaining those who are called to lead. One is a having the ability to receive revelation and receive a confirmation of the leader's revelation. She also says that priesthood quorums and relief societies help us focus on the work of salvation and engage us in it. I certainly see that uh, happening in, in the class time, but also in um, efforts at ministering or just efforts at reaching out to those people you see at church during the the Zoom period of the pandemic, uh, I we just didn't have that luxury of really seeing people come in and sit down, seeing the way their shoulders maybe slumped, or maybe they looked bright because they were just back from a vacation, or or maybe there was a little bit of redness around their eyes. You know, all those hints that you need to be in the physical presence of other people in order to really get a sense for how they're doing. And whether you should reach out to them with a little text or a cookie or something later in the week. She also says, uh, in our Quorums and Relief Societies, we can help bishops wisely manage the Lord's storehouse. 
something that they were figuring out how to do then. And that because the red brick store functioned as an early storehouse where goods were for the poor. You can see at one of these meetings, uh, Sister Jones needs help. No, not Sister Jones. Some, another sister whose name I've forgotten. It's a cool <laughs> variation on keeping up with the Joneses. <laughs> what you're trying to do is make sure you understand the Joneses' needs and actually go and meet them. It's a nice gospel inversion. But they give her a a, a coupon so she can go to the store and, and get what she needs because she's destitute. Um, help. Let's see, provide a defense and a refuge. I like both of those images. A defense and a refuge for Heavenly Father's children and their families in the latter days. Strengthen and support us in our family roles and responsibilities as sons and daughters of God. I just I I am in a writing group with Amy Harris at BYU, who's in charge of the family history program there. And all of her work is geared toward helping us remember that a family is more than a husband and wife and their children, that family relationships as adults are more than the relationships of parents to their children. Family relationships are the relationships of daughters to parents and of sons or to uh, brothers to sisters. And you know, all, each each role, each member of the family has a has a family role and responsibility that they can step up and fulfill. I'm thinking of my friend who cared for her mother while her mother was dying. She and her sisters cared for their mother for a couple of months while their mother was dying of breast cancer. That you know that that's that's not t- t- an adult couple raising young children, which is important, but it seems to be what we only think about um but there are also all of these other roles and responsibilities that are crucial to our flourishing in a in a family space um and and finally she says in our quorums and relief societies we are to be taught and inspired to become who our father in heaven created us to become sam what what thoughts do you have about this phrase that uh that he will make of us, of this society, a kingdom of priests. Yeah, it's certainly one that has uh, has resonated very differently in the last 50 years than it did 200 years ago. And I think as a consequence has had a lot of us thinking pretty carefully about it. It, it, it as, as you told me earlier today, kingdom of priests is a, a reference in Exodus as God is creating basically new Israel under Moses and says, you're going to be a kingdom of priests, which presumably means that the priests will have a crucial role in governance of that society, that that priest priests and religious functions and priesthood will be a, a bedrock foundation for the society that they're building. And then when I think about how Joseph Smith refers to kingdom of priests in uh, what what seems to have been his new year's 1842 message where he talks about and that's in the joseph smith papers uh you can check it online or in the beautiful books where, where the joseph smith papers are and that would have been just two months two and a half months earlier yeah yeah clearly on his mind and he starts those thoughts thinking about the temple and he talks about how the church is being organized that it's being organized the way 
ancient sacred societies were, and he calls out Enoch uh, and this city of Zion that he has. That's the ancient structure, and and he's thinking about what it means to live anciently, and he sees in that sacred antiquity this. Sorry, I was getting all pompous, wasn't I? Sacred antiquity. Good heavens, it's like an academic talking. <laughs> but he, but he sees in the past basically in the in the past life of Israel and of the church in its Christian period after Jesus has come, he sees that the the core of society really is this connection to the power of God. And he anticipates that when Jesus comes again that that God will rule. And I think we now are really worried about religious extremists who contaminate that language in important ways. But I, I think it's important to remember that just because some crazy person starts using someone else's language, that doesn't make the underlying language corrupt. And 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 fundamentally, what I understand Joseph Smith to be saying is that we have to build a church that is prepared for the return of Jesus and that uses the structure of the ancient church as its foundation. And that is a society that's founded on the power of God and priesthood. And he anticipates that that then means that the temple, the priesthood associated with it and the church structures will prepare the church community for the return of Jesus to the earth and the second coming. So, that's my sense, as he's saying that the temple provides an infrastructure, not just for simple worship as we might think about it, but but really a structure for society. And if we want society to be ready for the return of Christ, we need to have our hearts open to God and power of priesthood to to make that happen. And and I think you can do this in good faith and in good love to people who disagree without ending up in the land of you know, these religious extremists that are ready to, to blow things up and kill lots of people in the name of, in the name of that kind of uh, kingdom of priests. Beautiful. Thank you. I want to mention Julie Smith wrote an, a thoughtful piece in Times and Seasons, I think it was in 2014, um, that ex- explores this passage as well. And, and she reminds us that Joseph Smith was talking to the group of women and he was trying to establish something among women. He, he wasn't talking to women and men, so he was doing something distinctive for women. And and I think she, she was getting at the point that I see is I, I see a, an establishment here of something complementary that I th- uh, that we need relief society and we need priesthood quorums. They're distinct, uh, but they're complementary, and we can honor them both. Ju- Julie Beck, just one last quotation from her. It's an important talk. Uh, she said, what the Lord envisioned regarding quorums and relief societies has not yet been fully utilized. Many quorums and relief societies are at present much like sleeping giants waiting for you to breathe new life into them. I think we've been given the opportunity with all of the structural changes and, and ministering and many other uh, other opportunities of the past few years to um, breathe new life into these 
sleeping giants. I think I think we're on our way. And that was prescient of her to see that. And and I I believe that when we feel relief society isn't enough, that we are not experiencing the full potential of relief society. That's that's my own belief. And, and I'd like to um, leave us with one last perspective on this kingdom of priests idea. I, I loved what you said, Sam. And I, I also think that not all of them were priests. Not all of the Israelites were priests. So I wonder whether there was something else, something in addition going on in that notion. And I thought, what do priests do? Priests help bring a body of people to God. They perform ordinances, and through the ordinances, people can be brought closer to God. They can teach, and through their teaching, people can be brought closer to God. Certainly, priests in our tradition are different than they were um, back in Exodus 19, when when all of this was being established. But I, I've been moved by um, some thinking that that Patrick Mason did uh, reading his book, Restoration, would introduce you more to his ideas on this. But he talked about how in the 1980s, when he was a kid, he's our generation, just a little bit younger, um, people were so excited about the growth in the church, and they came to see the growth of the church almost as a proof that it was true. And and we've had to shift models now. The, the church still grows, but it's not growing like it was in the in the 80s. And, and we know that we won't be able to convert every person, every good person in the world to the church before the millennium. And so what what does it what does it mean? What does success look like under those circumstances? And he likes the images of uh, church members being salt or leaven, something that lifts and flavors, enhances all, all of those around it. And, and so when I think of a kingdom of priests, I think of a, a group of people loved of God who can, like salt or leaven in the culinary world, really um, lift and lighten and bring others regardless of their religious affiliation, closer to God them, themselves. It's a great insight. wanted to leave us with that image. Thank you so much for being with us for this third episode of Committed Conversations with Kate and Sam. And we look forward to seeing you next time. Goodbye. <laughs>